This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork, and I'm here with our features editor, Ryan Domble, and our news editor, Matthew Strauss. Hello. Hey. So it's been a big week for Pitchfork and for indie heads everywhere. Just a few days ago, Fleet Foxes surprised released a new album called Shore. And today, Sufjan Stevens released his new album, The Ascension. Needless to say, both of these artists are indie music icons, their staff favorites, and regular best new music contenders, even as their sounds have evolved significantly over the past decade or so. Full disclosure, we were super fortunate and got both of their albums a little bit earlier than everyone else, but it has been extremely hard for us to keep quiet about them. Ryan, you were here when the first Fleet Foxes EP came out, right? Yeah. Do you remember like what that era felt like and how people were reacting to them back then? Yeah, a little bit. I remember back then we had a message board, like an internal message board that you had to be a writer to post on back when message boards were a thing. And there was a lot of chatter about Fleet Foxes, this hot new band from Seattle of folk dudes. (laughs) dudes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, the, their, their debut album, uh, self-titled debut album, as well as their Sun Giant EP, which is kind of like the, both their breakthrough moment, came out in 2008. Right. We combined them to be the number one album of 2008 on Pitchfork, which is wow. quite the honor. Thinking about it now, I think part of what cut through is here were these guys. There was just, there was no artifice. Like this was right. this music that appealed to almost everybody um, in some way or another. Yeah. But yeah, I think that they, they really kind of bridged that gap between generations. They had a hopeful sound in 2008, which was a time of hope and change. If, if anyone can feel and remember that at this point. <laughs> um, God, that's bleak. And yeah, so they they kind of came up right as around the same time as Obama's ascendancy. And to me, looking back, it does make a lot of sense because when you listen to those records now, it's this is like a wide open blue sky. Anything can happen. after the darkness mm-hmm. of the Bush years. And I feel like maybe that's part of, partly why they resonated at that point. Do you have a sense of, when you say that they appealed to kind of everyone's taste, absent the hope of it all? Like, do you have a s- sonic sense of why? Yeah, I think it's the sort of music that, for people who are older... The sound probably brings them in because it just sounds like things that you might be familiar with from your youth. Stuff like the Beach Boys, Simon and Garfunkel. Then people who are younger, maybe uh, our friend Matt Strauss can speak to this a little bit more, but I think some of their lyricism is... Is the implication there that Matt is younger? Yeah, sure. I think that might be the implication. (laughs) (laughs) Also just more knowledgeable than me regarding Fleet Foxes. (laughs) Yeah, speaking uh, as a former young person, 
who was listening to Fleet Foxes. <laughs> I think I was 17 when Helplessness Blues came out, so I could certainly feel helpless. I remember pretty vividly being in the car one day with my mom and putting on the title track of Helplessness Blues and trying to go line by line with her and and say, no, this is, I mean, this is so deep. This is such a good song. Do you see what he's saying? Uh, and I still feel that way. But it didn't say to me, like, oh, I remember Beach Boys or The Birds. Um, it just felt right. completely new and different. And it felt like something that also, as Ryan alluded to, had some lyrical or intellectual heft to it, at least more so than who, at least in hindsight, would be kind of the comical peers of early Fleet Foxes, like Mumford and Sons or Lumineers, bands that mm -hmm. are not really taken seriously, but could be on the same Spotify playlist as Fleet Foxes. I mean, they're wildly successful, if not more successful than Fleet exactly. Foxes. <laughs> did it sound like what you expected it to sound like? Like, what was your expectation and where did it land? That's a good question, because... The band's comeback album, Crack Up, sounded, mm -hmm. I think, very different from however I or anyone else may have expected. It was a lot darker. It was a lot more complicated musically. It was a lot more depressed in in a good way of, of being pretty realistic, especially, you know, going back and listening to early songs. It's, it's almost like they don't make any sense of of just mm. what they're singing about and now you have these tangible moments the one that i think about all the time from crack up is on the song i should see memphis where robin pecknold sings endless vacation felt like You know, fast forward three years later, while we're all on this uh, endless weekend, it's just a very pretty couplet summarizing yeah. how it feels to just go through life, not really sure what to make of it. And so I perhaps would have expected them to go even deeper into that direction on the new album, but I think it actually returned in some ways more to the vibrancy of the early music. The second song is called Sunblind. On that song, Robin Pecknold sings about swimming. If you follow his prolific... Can you imagine swimming? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds delightful. Where is he swimming? Uh... You know, that's a, a, an excellent question. Uh, <laughs> Must be nice, uh, Robin. According to the song, it's in American water. So that, that narrows it down to 50 states. Of course it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you follow his, his entertaining and prolific Instagram, it seems like he's gotten into surfing or has always been surfing. He's had a real glow up lately. Yeah. It feels like yeah. in the past few years. What is happening on his Instagram? There was one highlight I was watching recently where he played around with the pitchfork filter for a while, the one where you hold it in front of your face and it gives you a pitchfork score. And he kept getting sixes and worse. And, and you know, he was feigning 
being quite upset. This is coming from someone who's only ever gotten best new music on his on his new releases, at least on his initial albums. And so he, he even at a point tried playing a song from Fleet Foxes and we still gave it something like a five. Wow. Uh, so he's very entertaining. By we, you mean the algorithm, <laughs> this filter that's You know, I don't know who made. made the algorithm. I'd like to think that it was you, Pooja. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got a 3.8. <laughs> on it so but uh, to get to get back to the album it does sound like he's relaxed in a way i think it's important that this is the first fleet foxes album since their debut in my opinion where it's not completely heavy with expectations yeah but you can kind of hear throughout it's like he's cracked open that tendency to experiment and you get these shorter moments that feel almost jazz-like at times. A song like Featherweight is kind of minor key and feels like there's a lot going on below the vocals. Uh, Maya Stranza quiet air joya they're they're just these kind of deeper denser moments that fleet fox is used to kind of isolate or cordon off and then make way for the for the big sing-alongs and now it's just put together in a more complex way When you phrase things, and it, I think it tracks, like when you phrase things like the early Fleet Foxes stuff sounded like hope, in part tied to the political climate. And then, you know, he moves to New York in part as like Trump ascended. And now this is kind of a, a level of maturity in my and this is just me like mythologizing his his feelings and past. But I, I'm curious if there are any thoughts on that front. No, yeah, that rings true. I think when he first came out, when you're that young and you're aiming for this storied sound that harkens back to all these classic artists, I think that a lot of people, you know, hoisted uh, this kind of next, like, Brian Wilson albatross, like, on his neck. And, you know, when you're that young, I think it's like, you feel like, well, I guess I have to do this. I have to, like, live up to the seriousness of this legacy or, you know, these people that came before me Mm -hmm. and that probably screwed him up a little bit. I mean, I think it would screw up anybody like who, who gets famous that young and is so acclaimed. It's almost like you don't know why everyone loves you. (laughs) And yeah, this album to me feels, it does feel like a little bit of a cyclical moment where it's, it doesn't feel Mm -hmm. like he has a lot to prove. He's just doing his thing doesn't feel labored over. I'm going to position this to both of you, but where does this land in Fleet Fox's discography for both of you independently? I think we'll have very different answers, but I would say it's their second best album behind Crack Up. I think I certainly gravitate more toward the new stuff, this kind of 
maturity, as Ryan was saying, I think this album is very much about and sounds like being yourself and accepting who you are. Mm -hmm. There are some great lyrics on the new record, like on the song Young Man's Game, where he says... I think that song is just kind of saying I'm going to be who I am and that's fine. I don't need to prove anything to anyone. One of the best songs on the album is called A Long Way Past the Past. That's that. We're a long way from the past. I'll be better off in a year in two. You know, recapturing some of that early hopefulness but not in a naive way of just accepting what's happened and moving forward. And I think that's why, for me, that makes these a little more impactful records. I have like a crackpot theory, if y'all are interested. Let's hear (laughs) it. Um, Let's hear it. So I'm also really curious to see what Strauss has to say about this, because I was thinking of Robin and his relationship with Josh Tillman, a.k.a. Father John Misty, who... Famously, famously played with Fleet Foxes from, I want to say, 2008 to 2012, something like that. Is that right? That's about right. And, you know, it's funny to think about now because when Fleet Foxes first came out, it's such this kind of, you know, innocent, hopeful. (laughs) I love where this is going. (laughs) I can't stand the man. And then, you know, uh, Robin Pechtold and and uh, Father John Misty had a falling out uh, that seemed pretty contentious. Uh, I don't think they like each other. And, you know, since then, since around 2012, I feel like the world has really gone toward um, in this more evil, cynical, horrible direction, <laughs> which you could equate to, like, Father John Misty's uh, persona, let's say. <laughs> um <laughs> And you could equate <laughs> it that way. Yeah, and it's, but yeah, and now it seems like it's almost like turning back around, or maybe I'm just like, I'm trying to wish this into existence, um, where like, <laughs> where humanity is like turning back around into a more Fleet Foxes friendly place. <laughs> <laughs> And perhaps Father John Misty is peaked, but uh-huh, that's uh-huh. my general theory. And like, I'm just really curious about what Strauss has to say because I know he's a big fan of of both songwriters. I am, and to me, that's almost like a contradiction, like in itself. Like, yes, totally. So, I need to say a quote, two things before we go any further. <laughs> this is from uh, a man named Austin Post. Uh, and it's from April 2015. Uh, and the quote is, if you don't like Fleet Foxes, then fuck you. Whoa. Uh, that, same, that same man, you might know him better as Post Malone. On December 30th, 2016. <laughs> this is like the Strauss trifecta. It is. On December 30th, 2016, he tweeted, please, if you haven't listened to any Fleet or FJM, I don't know if I can talk to you. Wow. So 
he and I are in, in a similar boat of being fans of both Robin Pecknold and Joshua Tillman. Well, would you say, would you say if there were no Fleet Foxes, there would be no Post Malone? Bold statement. Uh, uh, no, but I want to believe, I want to believe that. <laughs> wow. Okay, since we have officially gone off the rails, we are going to take a quick break and come back with Sofian. The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like, holy f***. He just <laughs> nailed the shit out of that. Sorry. And America Ferreira. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to, like, be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Okay, so let's talk about the Sofiane Stevens album. I mean, personally speaking... I was entering this with a extremely high level of excitement and anticipation about what this could possibly sound like. He announced this album with the release of that song, America, which was over 12 minutes long. Ryan, what were your thoughts when you first heard that song? Well, my first thoughts were how it's been a long time since he previously dealt with America in a, in a long yeah. form way which was pretty early on in his career in 2000, like the mid 2000s. Uh, he put out two albums called Michigan and Illinois. And both of those were marked by kind of a ear for history, mm-hmm. maybe some civic pride. The sound of the engines and the smell of the grain. We go riding on the abolition grain train. Stephen A. Douglas was a great debater, but Abraham Lincoln was the great emancipator. The music was kind of a souped up version of folk music slash musical theater um, yeah. <laughs> slash twee. A lot of pianos, <laughs> banjos, strings, just kind of throwing it all out there. And, you know, that's what he made his name on. It's kind of a nerdy project. And yeah, those two albums were initially earmarked as the beginning of a 50 state album project that he has since... 48 to go. Yeah, that that he has (laughs) since admitted was essentially a marketing ploy. But anyway, since then... He's pivoted a couple of times. Uh, he made a le- an electronic album in 2010 called The Age of Odds. And then he made a very stripped down album, acoustic album, uh, called Carrie and Lowell, which was his last album. And then, so yeah, and then we get to America. I 
it incorporates all the kind of some of the electronic textures of the Age of Odds, some of the unfathomable sadness of Carrie and Lowell, and kind of combines those into this portrait, like it's more of a personal portrait of America. Like he's not describing a state or a city or a historical figure. It feels a lot more personal and disappointed and hopeless and et cetera, et cetera. 2020, let's do this. (laughs) I mean, this album felt like his kind of um, I'm fed up resignation album. Yeah, it's similar to how Fleet Foxes kind of didn't need to play to anybody's expectations on their new album. Mm-hmm. Sufjan kind of not playing to expectations is almost that he's exceeded them in the past. Right. Like he's become a cultural icon. He made songs for Call Me By Your Name. He performed at the Oscars and just Carrie and Lowell was an instant classic. So now he's just taking a step back and saying, I don't need anybody's expectations but my own. I'm going to do anything that I want to do. I'm going to make songs that are insular, songs that are long, or songs like Sugar, where he acknowledges that a lot of the lyrics are just cliches. You know, you have to kind of sift through whatever he's going through to figure out what he's trying to say. And with America being the first single, it's almost uh, a red herring as to how um, grandiose this album would end up being. Grandiose is one way of putting it. (laughs) It feels chaotic to me. (laughs) This is like the chaotic... The chaotic neutral Sufjan Stevens. So yeah, since the last album was so spare, uh, it was really him and a guitar and little eerie effects. Like there's hardly any drums even on it. Um, It kind of made sense within his trajectory to do the opposite, just like a kind of kitchen sink record. But, you know, throwing in cliche, that's just not what we, what should that's not what Sufjan is should be doing. <laughs> like we have a lot of other people who can be who can like be tossing cliches around. Um, that's really the opposite of what I personally want from him. Well, let's like, what did we like about the album? What were good songs on the album? What made us happy? <laughs> no, it's not, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible record. Um, there's one song that I love that I feel like is instantly among his kind of greatest hits, which is the mm-hmm. title track of the album called The Ascension. Yeah, it's the second to last track. And... It is perhaps not coincidentally the most Carrie and Lowell-ish song on the album. Mm -hmm. Um, It wouldn't have really fit on that album, but it seems like a more logical next step. And it is, it kind of incorporates a lot of what I personally love about Sufjan. And to me, this is where the album like should have started, like both as 
you know, I think it would be a great opening song, but just more thematically, like they would have preferred this to be kind of the direction that he went, but instead this is more of an outlier on the album. Yeah. I Do you think that we're being more critical because we love him so yeah, much? I mean, I, I definitely am. So I guess like in the, in the world of Sofian, where does it land in the catalog? Well, yeah, I mean, I personally think it's a... A lesser work, <laughs> but you know, it's not to count him out, yeah, yeah, or yeah, anything yeah. like that. But yeah, I think that he's tried to do something different and better or worse than silver and gold, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I'm pretty sure you reviewed for Pitchfork. I did review silver and gold, which is a box set of like 60 Christmas songs, and my partner <laughs> did not appreciate that assignment. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I uh, <laughs> like Sorry, if you. So I made like a mixtape of silver and gold for myself of the best twenty songs. That is better than this album. Wow, um, Strauss, what about for you? Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm going to be going back to the Ascension often, uh, but yeah, I think America is a song that I would listen to and enjoy but otherwise it's just such a challenging album and i kind of ask myself the question who is it challenging because when i think of a challenging album from this year my mind immediately goes to fiona apple's fetch the bolt cutters which was more than universally beloved but there's almost a reward to her challenge um the Sufjan Stevens songs seem to challenge you to find those subjects, try to figure out why a song like Die Happy goes on for as long as it does. nice to be challenged by a piece of music but not if there's not much at the end of the rainbow yeah part of the trouble or frustration um or light disappointment for me is that he is challenging like he made a lot of songs about god and when you think about what a Sufjan Stevens album in 2020 could be as tied to the idea of America and politics. Like you expect something that can stir you and doesn't feel like it's repeating something that you've been becoming numb to almost like the idea of religion is numbing. And I think like the idea of the current political climate is numbing and you kind of seek out artists like him to make them accessible and like emotionally gutting in a new way. Yeah. I mean, another quote that he said recently describing this album is basically, he said, I'm tired of myself, which I think, especially as a, a white indie rock singer songwriter in 2020, I think a lot of them might say the same thing. It just doesn't seem like that voice is necessary right now. So much of his best music is at least tangentially about himself. Like, it's not a diary, but 
turning the self into a mythology or, you know, having, having the yeah, self be totally. part of a bigger mythology. And that makes you feel like yourself is part of a bigger mythology. And it, you know, and, yes, absolutely. And that's just, it's just such a heartening feeling to feel like you're yeah, re- part of something bigger while also maintaining like a sense of self. Yeah. So basically, Sofian's burden is very heavy and we all get so much from what he has delivered to us that we were sitting here waiting for a new gospel and and it didn't necessarily arrive. Yeah. <laughs> Alas. Um, any other references you want to make to Post Malone aside to <laughs> Sofian Stevens? Strauss, before we go. <laughs> That's a great question. I would have to Google it so it wouldn't feel as authentic as knowing the Post Malone quotes off the top of my head. I feel like you could do a six degrees yeah. to Post yeah. Malone for any yeah. artist. We need Posty's take. You can read our reviews of the new Fleet Foxes and Sofian Stevens albums on pitchfork.com. And if you need even more new music, call our Pitchfork request line at 917-524-7371. Leave us a voicemail and Pitchfork's music critics will try to recommend you something new. Again, that number is 917-524-7371. We'll take a listen and pick a few to feature on an upcoming episode. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Special thanks to Ryan Domble and Matthew Strauss for coming on the show. You can follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Domble and Matthew at Matthew Strauss underscore. You can follow me at Sonari. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Caitlin Pierce and Ben Montoya. It was edited by Todd Whitney and Andy Cush. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Our original music is by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. This episode was mixed and scored by Ben Montoya. Special thanks to Amy Phillips and Julie Shen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also email podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts.